we started um, several months ago going through the book of Revelation. That's where we're at um, today. And we're, we're actually not too far out from being done with this great book. Today, um, we're going to be sort of doing kind of a part two, sort of uh, dovetails into what we looked at last week. And one of the things that we pointed out is we go through the Bible, uh, we're basically forced to deal with um, everything that just sort of comes into it uh, consecutively. In this particular case, what we looked at last week just happened to be Mother's Day, and we looked at judgment. And that's what, in essence, as, as it came up in the text, and that's what we're going to continue to look at this morning, is this really large concept and picture of judgment. And what I want to do before we jump in, I want to preface this message this morning by essentially saying that I think there's sort of a a misnomer in terms of the way people read our Bibles. Um, What I mean by that is there's a tendency, maybe you've been like this, maybe you've assumed it this way as well, and the tendency is to think that the portrayal of God in the Old Testament is that he's, he's grumpy. As opposed to the God in the New Testament, he's really nice. The God in the Old Testament, he's really capricious. God in the New Testament, he's more balanced. All right? God in the Old Testament, if you're rubbing the wrong way, he'll kill you. The God in the New Testament, he'll die on the cross for you. God in the Old Testament, you know, it's, it's just this picture, this idea that the God of the Old Testament is just full of wrath and anger and judgment. He's angry. He's upset with people. And if you don't watch your tracks, he'll wipe you out. Whereas the God that you get in the New Testament is gentle Jesus. He wears a dress, has long flowing hair. He hangs out with sheep, and little kids jump up and down on his lap. And he's just a really nice guy. Feeds people. He's kind of like this walking, you know, food caterer. Everybody loves Jesus. He's a great guy. Speaks nice little messages, gives pithy statements. Everybody loves Jesus. He's kind of like the Zen Buddhist guy that everybody just loves to hang out with because he's so positive, right? This sort of mentality is really wrong. Because the picture that it portrays is that there's a contrast between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And what that does is it sends the message that really you got two different books, they're portraying two different gods, and that's just simply not true. What I want to try to do today is to, in essence, try to prove that the God of the New Testament really, in essence, is a God of judgment as much as he is a God of love. In fact, what I want to basically describe it as is the judgment that we see in the Old Testament, as well as the love, because there are definitely times where God describes his love, and he's a, you know, even uh, the psalmist, David, sings about God's love, and so on and so forth. Um, But what I want you to notice is that even though judgment and love appear in God, from God, in the Old Testament, uh, judgment and love also appear in God, from God, in the New Testament. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the picture or portrayal of love of God in the New Testament has a higher relief, is more pronounced, is painted with more vivid colors, in more saturated tones. That God, the picture in the portrayal of the judgment of God and the love of God are far more pronounced in the New Testament than they are actually in the Old Testament. And that's what I want to try to, for us to be able to understand and see, because what we'll begin to notice today, as we kind of started last week, this larger picture of God's judgment being poured out, um, we'll see why God's judgment is poured out, and upon whom God's judgment is poured out. But before we get into this, um, I'm going to pray, and then as soon as we jump in, I'm going to show you guys a few pictures that hopefully will create and stimulate some raw emotion in all of you. It should. 
if we're not, you know, stones. I mean, if we have half an emotion, half an ability to actually feel things, they should generate some sense of emotion in us. And the type of emotion, for the most part, should probably be, uh, you know, across the board the same in all of us. So with that, I'm going to pray. We're going to look at this theme and subject matter of, of judgment. Um, but at the same time, just give you guys something to look forward to. Again, like I said, next week we're going to be looking at baptism week. And after that is the baptism week. After that, we're going to be in heaven. You're like, really? We're going to go to heaven in the book of Revelation? I mean, maybe before that, yeah. I mean, I don't know. But we will be in, in heaven in about three weeks out, all right? That's where we will actually naturally be once we're done with taking a look at 16, 17, 18. Because chapter 19... Everything moves to heaven. There's great celebration. There's great rejoicing because of what God has done in vanquishing his foes. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. We've got a lot of stuff to cover today. Uh, but again, first up, we're going to show you some of these pictures, let you think about these pictures. Then we're going to talk about the subject of God's justice, how it works. Father, right now we ask you that you would help us. You give us strength, God, to just not simply understand doctrinal truths, God, we don't want to just simply hear a message and hear uh, a thoughtful argument and at the end of the day just simply increase knowledge because knowledge always has this propensity to puff up and make us arrogant. But God, at the same time, I pray more than anything that as we hear your word, that it would open our eyes to bigger pictures of Jesus just as The book of Revelation is all about, it's a revelation, it's an unveiling of Christ. God, that we would see Jesus today, that in seeing Jesus, that we would be more in awe, more in love with him and what he's done for us on the cross. So we just submit ourselves to you, we commit our time in your hands, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, first up, we're going to see these bowls of judgment that God's going to pour out, and what you're going to... You need to know, first up, is that most scholars believe, you know, whether or not they are, you know, pre-mill, post-mill, whatever, and people typically, for the most part, most scholars believe that the judgments that we're going to be taking a look at are the final judgments in all of God's uh, history, and then at the end of that, Jesus will end up coming back and restoring his kingdom. Most scholars believe that these are the final judgments. Most scholars believe that these have not yet happened, meaning they are yet future. They will yet come, and as they come, um, they will be intense. They will be hardcore, and they will be very thorough, and they will be just. God will be just in what he's bringing about. And to try to help us to understand justice, to help us to understand what it means to execute judgment upon evil, I'm going to show you some pictures in a second here, but I want you to be thinking about something um, in the top of your head. Because for us, when we talk about justice, the idea of justice is very appealing to us when somebody has offended us, when somebody has done something to us, and we want justice immediately, don't we? We, we want somebody, whether it be a judge, whether it be a cop, whether it be, you know, a mom, whether it be somebody or a teacher in a classroom or whatever type of system or structure, social structure that we are in, if somebody does something against us, we want somebody to step in and say, stop it. We want somebody to step in and say, you know, you pay them back. You owe them an apology. You give back what they took from you. That's justice. That's a cry for justice. But here's what happens. Uh, Everything gets turned around when we're the perpetrators, 
when we're the ones that are defiling other people, when we are the ones that are basically bringing injustice or causing pain or hurting somebody or offending somebody else, we typically don't want justice then. We want mercy. We want someone to be in, and especially if they got a hatchet falling in our throat, we want, we want to be able to say, can we talk about this? Can we negotiate this? Can we try to have a little bit of a plea bargain going on here? Is there some way that we can work through this to kind of come to some sort of agreement or some sort of terms that mm, I won't have to be judged? Does that make sense? So we have, I would say, an imbalanced view of justice, of judgment, and it's partial. Or it's impartial, I say. It's because it's usually always weighted in our favor. We want mercy, but we want everybody else to have justice, right? So with that being said, what we're going to see here is God, because he's a just God, because he's a God that judges justly, we're going to see God execute justice throughout all of chapter 16. And I'm actually just going to read it. I'm not even going to comment on it. I'm going to show you these photos in a second here, and I'm just going to read the text. I'm just going to read all through chapter 16, and you'll listen to it. I'm not going to say anything, and I'm just going to let the text speak for itself. Um, So first of all, let's take a look at these photos, and each of these photos were taken from more recent events, for the most part, in history. Take a look at the first photo. Obviously, we're familiar with 9-11. And one of the first things that obviously came to our minds was, somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay for this. Um, the next is a bomb. Below that, obviously, is uh, Hiroshima. Um, so I was looking at these pictures, these photos, a lot of them. There's a lot of them, obviously, I just didn't want to put up because of just the graphic nature of them. Um, but in combing through a lot of these, in the aftermath, a lot of the deformities, babies that were born after this, just absolutely, absolutely horrific. Um, these were families. These were human beings. These weren't just out there, somebody else, these were people just like you and I, who had kids, grandmas, had a life, sat down at dinner at night, ate dinner, had a dog, walked around the neighborhood, rode bikes, enjoyed life, had family vacations, and in an instant, all of them obliterated, wiped out. Take a look at the next one. Um, this is current. This is in Darfur, uh, Sudan. I'm going to read that little caption right here. It says, doing business in Darfur. Darfur. Uh, if you want to protect the ordinary people, you have to hold your nose and talk with the warlords, despots, and bandits. And uh, these people literally are just warlords or gangs uh, that drive around and shoot people. Just, they pull up into a village. They find a bunch of women walking on the side of the road, and they rape you. Live your body bloody. If you survive the rape, you're bloody. You're hurt. That's not even talking about the mental, the mental strain that you're going to deal with for the rest of your life. Um, that's just the physical. Um, one of the side effects are kids, children. Um, nobody knows what to do with kids. Either put a bullet in their head or just leave them. They don't know what to do. Um, a lot of them are just orphans. Um, this bottom picture, you've seen this, uh, taken from the same region. I don't know, maybe even Ethiopia. I'm not even really sure. From, it's kind of an older one. But that thing off in the distance is actually a vulture waiting for the child to die in order to uh, eat it. Next one. Um, one of the fallouts is you get these kids that are basically abducted. You know, a lot of us are familiar with kind of the child trafficking and so on and so forth that's going on in the world. Uh, these kids are taken from moms and dads. Moms and dads are killed. Moms are raped first before they're killed because um, these guys are a bunch of sexual perverts. They don't really care about any women. They just, they just want to have sex, and they'll do it as many times as they can. They'll get as many guys together and just gang rape a girl and then kill her and then take the kid and turn him into a soldier, give him guns. 
Um, this picture is really interesting. The one next to it is, uh, that's a UN helicopter. And that helicopter literally represents salvation to these kids. It's literally a picture of somebody from the outside coming in to rescue, to bring help, to bring relief. Um, this note's really interesting. He who does not learn from history, it's crossed out, it says Rwanda, which was not too long ago, is doomed to repeat it in Darfur. Um, this is going on right now. Um, what's the Darfur of tomorrow? What's the Darfur of uh, 15 years from now? Where's it going to be? Because it's going to happen again. It'll keep happening. It'll just keep going on. History keeps repeating itself. The cycle keeps going. Why? Because it's broken. Not broken out there. It's broken in here. Take a look at the next slide. Um, you guys familiar with this? This is a guy from San Diego. Brutally rapes and murders these two girls. Uh, teenagers. One was 14. 14. And buries your body in a shallow grave. He admitted to both of them. Actually led the police to the 14-year-old that was taken back in December. Nobody knew where she was at. Um, uh, you guys are also familiar with Kaylee and Casey Anthony to the side um, right now in trial, trying to figure out, did she actually kill her baby? No one really knows for sure right now. Um, take a look at the next slide. This, this slide is really interesting to me, very poetic. And I think what, it, to me, I, the way I interpret it is, here's a child living in the streets of Sudan. He should be able to play. It's, the streets are empty. There's no kids. They're not outside. They're not enjoying life. They're not having fun. They're not eating popsicles. They're not playing with kids. Moms are not there laughing with kids. Dads are not there playing with their little ones, throwing baseballs with them. In fact, to just kind of depict the whole scene, kids playing with a ball that's popped. It just doesn't even work. The whole system is broken. You guys understand that? And the reality is, I've been trying to say this all along, all of this is part of the system that we live in. It's broken. Satan the dragon, as we looked in, Je in Revelation chapter 12, has seduced the world. We've all been corrupted. The whole world has been seduced and corrupted and lay under this curse of demonic evil activity. And we can, we can look at this type of stuff and just say, no, 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 this is, this is out there. This is way out there. And let me tell you how this works here. Because one of the things we're really good at, as far as Americans are concerned, we're great um, in terms of trying to just uh, push it out of our thinking where we don't have to think about it. And what we end up doing is we literally entertain ourselves to death. We play with our gadgets. We surf the internet. And if we read a headline that just really deeply disturbs us or troubles us, we just turn to another website. You're watching television. Uh, something comes on that's just horrific. You find Seinfeld. And you watch Seinfeld. You get a good laugh and you forget about it. You don't have to think about this type of stuff. And the reality is, is this is the way that we operate. We work like this. And we oftentimes even deceive ourselves in thinking, well, gosh, those warlords, these guys are nasty. I mean, they're horrible. I mean, they do these evil things. I mean, what you need to understand, I hope, you, I hope this is clear to you, that what those guys do, the warlords do in Darfur to these masses of people across the scope, across the desert, is exactly what the man does who works long, hard hours, who's got a wife, who's got bruises all over her body, and two kids that are absolutely always afraid. It's the exact same thing. Rather than ruling an entire region with guns and hand grenades, you rule a region with a very harsh voice. You rule your region, you rule your domain with your fist that you threaten in the face of your wife if she does something that you don't like. 
or that you threaten your kids with because if they do something you don't like, it's okay. You'll slap them. You'll hit them. You'll do whatever you can to coerce them, to manipulate them in order for them to be controlled. You have your own little Darfur going on in your house. This is making sense. Maybe that was what you were brought up in. Maybe that's what you grew up in. Maybe that's what your dad was like or your grandpa was like. Or maybe you are the dad that is that. I hope not, but that's the reality. Is that there is this propensity inside of all of us. I know this is dark. I know this is deep and evil. Nobody wants to talk about this stuff. But the reality is, this is the world in which we live in. How do we deal with this stuff? What's the answers to this? And interestingly enough, the way that the Bible answers this is it basically tells us that God will move. God will answer. God will respond. Our tendency is to want to respond ourselves. Our tendency is to want to fight back. And the problem with that is, which is one of the reasons why Jesus says, look, if someone slaps you on the cheek, give them your other cheek. You don't know how to do retribution right. That's Jesus' whole point. You're like, I'm a Christian. I know how to do it right. You don't know how to do it right. We don't know how to do retribution right. I've said this before. You know, we always go back. We're like, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But the reality is, I mean, when it comes down to it, I know because I watch this literally in my kids all the time. All right? It goes like this. You take out my eye, I'll take out both your eyes. All right? You take out my tooth, I'll take out your whole upper row of teeth. And maybe throw in a limb as well. All right? Uh, Because we don't know how to give retribution back justly. And oftentimes the overreactivity of uh, executing our quote-unquote justice is just more injustice. And so the answer of the Bible is that God says, I will come back and I will execute justice and I will push back the forces of evil and I will judge justly that which needs to be judged, and I will take care of it. So what you see here in the New Testament is this portrayal of judgment and justice that God will bring. So with that being said, I want to read the text, just listen to it. we got a lot of stuff to look at, and here's what it basically says. As it begins to pour out, God begins to pour out these seven bowls of judgment. Just listen to it, and here's what I want you to think about. Think about watching something being judged. Just like if, if you saw something going up in smoke and you were completely powerless to do anything about it, what I want you to think, again, this is kind of one of those things that, you know, modern day American Christians, you're like, yeah, we don't want Bible studies like this. We want, you know, nice pick-me-up things that are just really cheerful and happy. I want happy, clappy worship music where there's six women on stage all holding the mic. That's what we want. We want to feel really good. And the reality is, is that's not realistic. There are times where we just have to simply face the fact that our Jesus, though he is loving, he's also a God of great just judgment and justice. And we don't have the option, we don't have the luxury of somehow catering to our type of Jesus. We just don't have that luxury. We can't somehow manipulate a Jesus that fits us. We can't somehow take Jesus and say, I like the gentle Jesus. I like the Jesus that's friendly Jesus. I like the community Jesus that hangs out with me. You know, some of them are like, you know, I like the angry Jesus. And, you know, they, they like that Jesus because they're really angry. And they start blogs and they're really angry. And they even go even further on those blogs. But the reality is, is that we, we want to make sure that our Jesus is rounded with the way that the Bible describes Jesus. So I want you to just listen to Jesus as he brings judgment upon the world 
At some point in the future, those who have been seduced follow and love the dragon. Here's what he says. I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of wrath. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood on the corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And they heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you have brought these judgments, and they have shed the blood of saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they were cursed, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, and they cursed the God of heaven in their pain and sores, and they did not repent from their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way of the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the prophet, three Unclean spirits like frogs, for they, had, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Lord, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that is in the Hebrew, which is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And the loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since was on the earth. So great was the earthquake that the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations all fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. God brings his judgment. It's heavy. It's intense. But one of the things, again, I want to keep reiterating and placing into its proper context when we talk about the final, ultimate judgment which God brings, which this, this is it. I mean, this is what's happening. Ultimately, God will cast them into the lake of fire. But we read a verse last week in Matthew, uh, I think 25, somewhere around there. Jesus basically said this. He says, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, which was made for Satan and his angels. So if I understand this correctly, that the only reason why humanity would really fall under the judgment of God is because what has happened is that they've literally fallen into this perennial love affair and seduction of the dragon. They've been seduced, they've fallen prey to him, and various forms of evil reside in the heart, ultimately bringing offense to God 
And for that offense, and for our love affair for other things other than God, we will be judged with the dragon. Now, I mentioned this last week. I've been talking about this a lot, and I've been watching it a lot because it's actually been kind of like a movie revival for me. The Lord of the Rings, all right? I said this last week. If you've not watched The Lord of the Rings, your homework this week is to go find somebody who's got The Lord of the Rings, go rent Netflix, go figure out a way to watch the movies. And here's the context I want you to think about it in. A lot of people describe the movies as being very dark. It's because they are. They're very dark. Tolkien wanted it that way. He wanted to portray this dark, dark picture of vast evil and wickedness. But one of the things that he think he, I think he got well was this reality is that evil has permeated all things. And in the form of the ring, this idea of the ring is that everybody, everybody falls prey to it. Everybody is tempted by it in some way, shape, or form. Nobody is exempt from it. And the reality is those who fall in love with the evil Lord or, the, or his goods in that movie, which is, you know, the evil guy's uh, Sauron and his kind of like right-hand guy, false prophet, however you want to look at him, Saruman, kind of the name sounds the same. But the idea is that these guys are sort of working in concert together to seduce the world. And those that join league and join forces with them will also pay the same fate and judgment that they will pay. And that's the picture of the Bible. So you say, I don't worship Satan. I've never like, been in a seance. I've never done anything evil. That's part of the deception. We've been trying to say this all along. Is that it's not just simply about doing evil, demonic, black, witchcraft type things. Worshiping the dragon could just simply look like worshiping anything other than Jesus. You understand that? I mean, you, you might not be bowing down to some idol and taking off your clothes and doing a weird, funky, like, evil dance around it and be like, oh, I'm totally satanic. But you might just simply be somebody that says, you know what? I take off my clothes and I have sex with my girlfriend, and I love her more than I love Jesus. Or you might be the type of person that says, I devote myself, body, soul, strength, and might to my career because that forms an identity for me. And you're willing to sell out everything you have to obtain that. In other words, you are willing to take the energy, the might, the strength, the power, the goodness, your money, everything you have that should be given over to the everlasting God who loves you and you devote it to something lesser than. That's what I'm saying. All of it's demonic. All of it. All of it has been tainted. All of it has been part of this larger picture of evil that has been tainted in this world. And it all puts us out of league and out of relationship with Jesus. I've said this before. You either follow the lamb cognitively, knowingly, lovingly, humbly follow the lamb, or you follow the dragon. It's just, that's, that's the picture of the book of Revelation. Jesus would put it this way. So if you don't like my words, listen to what Jesus says. He says, no man can serve two masters. You either love one and be committed to the other. You'll either follow God and love God, or you will be committed to money. That's it. Jesus will put it another way. He says, look, what profit does it gain a man if he should gain the whole world, everything, but lose his own soul? I mean, what my point that I want to make is this, is it really goes down to this. The judgment that is going to fall upon the dragon and sort of this kind of false trinity, which we'll see in a second here, is ultimately going to fall upon them first and foremost with the greatest weight, greatest impact, but 
it will also go down to all of those that have given their commitment over to them as well. Does that make sense? This is why this is so important to understand the gospel. Why Jesus and what Jesus has come to do to save us, not only did he come to you know, just you know, bring us into church, that's not what he did, came to do. It wasn't that Jesus came to make us good, nice little Christians. We had listened to Christian music, you know, buy Christian shirts, and we're, you know, just stuff that looks ridiculous a lot of the times. I mean, he came to literally pull us out of the kingdom of darkness and place us in his kingdom of light. And the reality is that we didn't even know that we were in darkness. That's how deceived we were. That's why worship is going to be so intense in heaven. Because we're not going to have blinders. We're not going to be under these false pretenses. We're not going to be deceiving ourselves in heaven. We're going to see things the way they are. We're going to realize that so many lies I had believed, so many lies I'd followed, so many pieces of bait I've eaten, not knowing that there was a hook in the middle of it. And Jesus rescued me from all of them. And at the end of the day, his whole point, I think, as God is to say, listen, the path that leads everybody in this world is a path that follows after the dragon. And it's all tainted. It's all broken. It's all destroyed. And it will all be judged. That's his point. So the reality what this does for us is it causes us, if you're a Christian, to not be full of pride and arrogance and act as if somehow you're on a team that you deserve. It's actually humbling. This is why, again, I'll throw out another like Lord of the Rings quote here. Remember when, you know, there's, there's this little point, you guys, most of you guys, even if you haven't watched, you may have heard about Gollum, this freaky looking creature. Uh, some of the stuff I've been reading, he like used to be, I think, you know, some of you guys are like a hardcore like, Lord of the Rings geeks. You're like, no, 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 he's not. I, 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 some of the stuff I read, I think he was like some sort of hobbit type creature, right? Am I theologically correct in that? Am I? Am I preaching heresy right now? I need to know. No, okay. He was once a hobbit, but he fell in love with this ring. And it radically changed him. It deformed him. He's just like this freaky, messed up creature. And there's this point in the film where this guy who's following, you know, Frodo Baggins, and he's just like, you know what, why don't we just kill the guy? We hate the guy. And then Frodo's just like, you know, I got, I got pity on him. I got pity on him. I mean, the poor dude's in love with the ring, and his whole life is consumed with this thing. That's why he's all tweaked and messed up and mutilated. And the reality is, that's what sin does for us. It mutilates us. Here's a nice big word for us. It dehumanizes us. It makes us less than what God intended us for us to be as human. Image bearers of God. So the point that I would make is one day God will judge. The pictures that we saw were dehumanizing. The picture of a child laying on the ground with a vulture about to eat it is dehumanizing. That was a human being formed, made, created in the image of God. That ought to make us mad. That ought to be the emotion that we cry out. We ought to have some sense of justice that says somebody should pay for that. And God's answer is, I will pay. I will judge. And so what we're going to see now is sort of this picture of uh, what Oftentimes, this gets described as this unholy trinity. So take a look at this next uh, slide. I want you to notice here, because what you're going to end up seeing in the next few chapters is God will bring his judgment upon uh, the dragon or Satan, the beast, which oftentimes gets identified as the Antichrist, and then ultimately the prostitute, which is what we're going to read about right now. And they also have a great city. 
uh, which gets identified as Babylon, or Babylon the Great. I personally don't think it's an actual physical city that's going to be in Iraq. Some people might debate that, but that's fine. It's a total secondary matter. But the reality is, is that whatever it is, it's some, it depicts some sort of system which the world lives according to that is completely um, opposite of Jesus. They're not asking questions, how can we bless God in our business? They're not asking, what should we do with our money? Should we go support foreign missions? They're not asking, you know, can we help you know, people that are in need? Those are not questions they're asking. They're asking, how can we get richer? How can we make more of a buck? How can we leverage more money out of somebody? That's what they're asking. And at the end of the day, they're asking, you know, hey, look, if Christians are in the way, how can we kill them, get them out of the way, so that we can keep making more money? Because we love our God. Our God is money. So that's the picture. So I'm going to read a handful of verses in 17 and 18, um, and we're just going to comment on, on these a uh, little bit, and I'm going to wrap it up uh, with some closing statements, and we'll finish this up, and we'll worship, all right? But what I want you to notice here is that in these chapters, um, if I were to be kind of making a film about this or a movie about this, what chapter 16 was is it goes through these seven bold judgments. All seven of them are enacted and going forth or happening. And somewhere around towards the end of that, once you get into chapter 17, it'd almost be like the camera would zoom back or pan back from the actual scene and go out into some other part of the world in which uh, this, you know, this prostitute is and begin to show some of the details of this prostitute. And then once you get to the next chapter, chapter 18, it'll kind of zoom out again and it'll go to sort of this... Um, uh, the beast and kind of, uh, or the, the city of Babylon and whatnot, and kind of focus on some of the details in there. So I think it's kind of all of this stuff that's sort of happening kind of in suspended animation. That's kind of the way John writes. So if you can think like that, you've got you to be a little bit creative when you think through this. I mean, if you're the type of, you know, the analytical reader, you're just like, where's the doctrinal truth in all this? Uh, it's going to be a hard time. If you're a kid, you read the book of Revelation, you're like, I totally get it. It's all easy. This book's simple. If you're an adult, you know, you've had lots of training, you're super smart, you're like, this book's hard, man. Um, and, but if you think about it that way, that's what John's trying to write. He's writing in this sort of like uh, just very uh, detailed pictorial imagery, um, suspended animation showing some of the details. I'm not going to go into all the details about the prostitute. Um, and if, if I had more time, I probably would, but probably wouldn't because there's a lot of details. And there's a lot of better more equipped pastors and teachers have done, in my opinion, going to do a far better job than I can. One of which I'd encourage you, if, you're like, if you like that type of stuff, you like all those little details, I want to direct you to John MacArthur. Go check out uh, gty.org. Uh, and he's got tons of stuff on this. Lots of detail. I'm not going to get as detailed. So if you're like, you know, what's the third horn? Like, I, I'm, you're going to be totally disappointed by me, okay? Um, what I'm looking for is Jesus. I'm, I'm really trying to just emphasize what Jesus is doing in these scenarios and how he comes out on top. So with that being said, here's a couple of verses we're going to look at. Verse 1, chapter 17, it says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers of the earth had become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit, in the wilderness. So John sees this, this lady. Uh, she's a prostitute. She's a harlot. All right? And it goes on in verse 4. It begins to describe her. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, uh, holding in her hand a golden cup. And if you can th get this picture in your mind, he's literally describing a stock picture of what a prostitute would have looked like first century. If this was written today, it would say she had like fishnet stockings, really, really short miniskirt, breast implants, very low-cut shirt, 
and she's just kind of hanging out in the strip in Las Vegas. And she's like walking up to your car and saying, you want me. In this picture, John's saying she has a cup. She's holding the cup out. It's, you know, think about it, like a martini or something. She's like, come drink. The picture of this is literally the seductive nature of this female. She's a prostitute. She's got one thing in her mind. Her desire is to seduce you. Her desire is to seduce anybody that will look at her and be turned on by her and fall prey into her hands. But it goes on to say that what she's drinking is not some sort of alcoholic beverage because she does get drunk, but she doesn't get drunk with alcohol. Notice what it says. Verse uh, finishes up, the golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual morality. Verse 5, and on her forehead was written the name Mystery. Mystery Babylon, the great mother of the prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk. This is what she's drunk with. The blood of saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Whoever this woman is, she hates God's people. But at the same time, she's calling God's people. Seducing God's people. Saying, come. All right, pretty? Come. Take me. Come. Lust after me. And those that do are defiled. That's the picture that John says. Those who sleep with her, those who engage with her, are defiled. They will be judged, and they'll be taken care of. Verse 14, it says, and they will make war. Uh, Again, I'm going to skip a bunch of passages right here and go down about verse 14. It says, and they will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of the lords and the king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Verse 1 of chapter 18 now begins to describe uh, the city Babylon. Um, Again, a lot of people have tried to identify this as sort of a literal, physical city in Iraq. Um, you know, when Saddam Hussein was alive, I remember years ago, someone was giving messages, they're like, we're pretty certain that Saddam Hussein might have something to do with being the Antichrist, uh, because after all, he calls himself, like, Nebuchadnezzar III, and, you know, and, you know, the bottom line is, is I, I just, I keep urging you guys, be careful in speculation, there's a lot of stuff we just don't know, a lot of stuff we don't know, and the reality is that whatever this Babylonian city is, is it plays into this sequence of pictures of the dragon, the false prophet, and the beast. It's sort of this unholy trinity. And this unholy trinity has their city. What you're actually noticing here, and what John's actually doing, the way he writes, is this sort of parodies God's trinity. And it parodies God's good city. But this is not a city. Like, the city of Babylon, it's known for its wealth. The city of God, it's known for gold streets. The city of Babylon is known for raping people and destroying people's lives and giving sometimes other people great wealth, great prosperity in return. But the city of God comes down out of heaven. It's holy and pure. It's good. That's the point that he's making. Verse 1, it says, And after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, and he called out with a mighty voice. He says, Fallen, fallen is the great city of Babylon. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt of every unclean spirit. It goes on, verse 3, it says, For the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now, I do believe, again, this is future, but at the same time, these elements are literally interwoven throughout the entire story of God's account. And I want you to think about this. If you're a Christian here today, before you were a Christian, 
You slept with that harlot. That was you. You slept with that harlot. You fell prey to the seduction. You were defiled by her evil. This is why Paul would even write things like this. We, by nature, are children of wrath. We've all been seduced. This is how deep and how great and how vast and how broad the evil in this world goes. This is why I've said before, Jesus alone is the only one that can uniquely be the Savior. Because he's the only one that has never been seduced. The only one that has never fallen prey. The only one that has never eaten the fruit of Satan's temptation. Yes, he was tempted in every way, but he never sinned. Yes, Jesus was betrayed, but he never called for vindication in that moment. He knew one day he would vindicate. He knew one day he would be victorious. But in the moment, Jesus just bore it all on the cross. That's what he was doing for us when he died. And he adds this little section in verse 4. He says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part of her sins, unless you share in her plagues. This is one of the greatest impetuses for us to live a holy life. As Christians, it's literally, that's why, why Paul writes in Colossians. Again, I, I referenced it earlier. God has literally picked us out of the kingdom of darkness. He places us in the kingdom of light and of his dear son. So this is why Paul would say later in Ephesians, he's like, what fellowship does light have with darkness? I mean, if you're a Christian, then why are you still hanging out with the ungodly deeds of darkness? I mean, the point is, is that it, it, what Jesus is saying here, come out of the darkness you know, you, you're going to live in Babylon. I mean, in a sense, that's where we're living. This is why Peter even uses languages like exile languages. You guys, fellow sojourners, you guys are in exile on planet Earth. Our nice trailer park. This isn't home. It's just a trailer park. We're just passing through to some degree. I mean, yes, God will come back and he will renew and restore. But the system of this world is broken. And the system of this world has been seduced. And the system of this world now currently resides under the God of this world, Satan. Satan will be judged. His false prophet will be judged. The beast will be judged. The sacred city of Babylon will be judged. And all who love it. You just have to see that. This is why the gospel is such good news. Because Jesus came and rescued us on a rescue mission to literally bring us out of the darkness, place us into light. This is what makes sin as a Christian so heinous. Sin as a Christian, it's like going back in the darkness. It's being like, ah, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a big deal because you don't realize how seductive the enemy is and how evil it is and how destructive it is and how dehumanizing it is to the point that Jesus came to seek and save us. Jump on down to about verse 9. He's going to describe the way that the kings respond. He said, the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury uh, with her, they'll weep. So they're bummed. Kings are bummed because they see Babylon destroyed. They got rich off of her. Verse 11 describes the merchants, uh, the people that you know, sell things, trade things, make a lot of money, own Costco, own Walmart, all that. You know, you're like, I knew Walmart was from the beast. You're right. It's all right here. And what's going to end up happening at someday, all the people that rape the earth, earth and destroy it and genetically modify food so that people get weird diseases, it's all going to be judged someday. I mean, the reality is, you're like, is he saying all this? Yeah. And the reality is, is that it's the point that I'm trying to say is all of it is somehow, some way, underneath, linked to the dragon. And if we put our hope and our confidence in that, 
rather than the lamb, then we're linked to it. We'll be judged with it. Listen how it finishes right here. And then a mighty angel about verse 20. It says, rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints, apostles, prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it in the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood of the prophets, of the saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. God basically will vindicate. He will win. At the end of the day, God will ultimately come out on top. I want to finish with this. Take a look at these next few verses. One of the messages that comes out clearly in the New Testament is that the New Testament teaching communicates there will be a future judgment. God will deal with sin. I said earlier that the New Testament sort of takes all of the pictures of judgment and of love uh, from the Old Testament and creates it even more vividly in the New Testament. So in other words, if there was judgment in the Old Testament and it was bad, then the judgment that's seen in the New Testament is twice as bad or even more worse. It's more saturated with more color. The relief stands out even higher, greater, bigger beyond that of the Old Testament. Okay? So what I want you to notice is that in all of the New Testament, what I find that's super unique is that in all the New Testament, the only types of judgment that you see are two. There's only two major themes of judgment that are actually portrayed in the New Testament. The first judgment is Jesus on the cross. Jesus is judged on the cross. Jesus even uses language from Revelation. He's in the garden. He's absolutely overwhelmed. He's sweating great drops of blood. And he literally asks God. He says, God, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, pass from me. And he surrenders himself to it. And he says, I'll drink that cup. The very cup of wrath that God will later pour out on Babylon and all who follow her. The first judgment, how great it was. Jesus dying on the cross. In all of the Old Testament, is there, can you even compare? Can you even think of any other judgment in the Old Testament that even compares to the mutilation and destruction as Jesus went through? The second judgment in the New Testament is this that we just read. So if I can put it this way, is that God will judge sin. God will either judge sin in his son Jesus, who literally absorbs the wrath of God in himself, sustains the wrath of God, dies, but then rises again from the dead and gives life to all who trust in him. Or God will pour out his wrath and his anger against the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and Babylon, and all who follow it. And if that's you, then that's the community that you're part of. I hope, I pray, that it's not you. I hope and pray that you actually trust the lamb. You follow the lamb. You follow Jesus. That's it. And if you do, then the judgment of God that has already been poured out was all upon his son Jesus. That means that God will not judge again. No double jeopardy. God will not. God cannot judge you a second time. That means if you are in Christ, if you're looking to Jesus today, your sins are forgiven. Your past has been wiped clean. 
all the wrath, all the judgment that would one day be poured out upon this world that you would have probably gotten, no doubt would have gotten, has been completely absorbed by Jesus. Here's the best thing about that, is that in return, in exchange, Jesus took all your wrath, and in exchange, Jesus gives you his righteousness, his place, faithfulness. And you're seen by God as his, his child. Paul and Peter preached about this judgment that will one day come. Look at Paul before Felix. It says, and he reasoned about this coming judgment. I want to read you guys a quote, wrap it up here. There's a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf, and um, he's actually a professor in Yale Divinity School. And he lived throughout the period of time of the Serbian-Croatia War uh, and what was going on there. And he saw a lot of people die. And uh, he has written some books about this and has got some amazing things to say. And he was basically asking the question, how can we in this world live with an understanding of rather than picking up the sword and fighting and trying to execute justice ourselves, again, which I've already tried to argue for, we can't execute justice properly. We don't know how to. We will always act unjustly. And when we act unjustly, we're actually just adding more evil to evil. Does this make sense? So how do we deal with justice? How do we deal with matters of righteousness and judgment in this world? And the Bible's answer is we commit it to God who will judge. God is not silent. I know we feel silent sometimes, but God is not silent. He is active. He is working. He is moving. And here's what Miroslav Volf says. Listen to what he says. Practicing nonviolence requires a belief of divine vengeance, meaning we have to understand. We have to have some sort of theological groundwork for the vengeance of God. He says, imagine speaking to people whose cities and villages have been plundered, burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have been ha- who have had their throats slit. He says, why should we not retaliate? If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, then God would not be worthy of our worship. But conversely, that is the story of the gospel, is that God will take wrath and judgment upon evil. God will rid the world of evil. God will make the wrongs to right. He will do that, beginning with Jesus. And those who follow Jesus, those who trust the Lamb, those who believe in Christ and follow him, will be made righteous as Christ is righteous. Those who reject the Lamb, stay aligned with the evil in this world. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, they live for the Babylon of this world and not the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven from the Father. You have your reward now, is what Jesus said to the rich man in the story of him and Lazarus. He says, in this life, you had your riches. You had all the good things. But Lazarus, he had nothing. Horrible sores. Dude, was a mess. Everybody mocked him. He was a loser. But he's with me now. What I want you to understand is this, is that God, at the end, he will judge sin out there. And he will judge sin in here. Either you will bear the judgment of God yourself, along with this unholy trinity, or you will trust the lamb who has already borne your punishment for you, who's already given you life. The last thing I would say, I'm going to have a worship team come up, we're going to be done. I want you to think about this. The difference between the God of this universe and the false gods and idols that we are oftentimes tempted to worship and give ourselves over to is this. God gives. 
the idols of this world, the gods that we oftentimes give ourselves to are deluded to think that they offer something. They don't give, they take. The God of this universe lays his life down and gives himself for us. The gods and the idols of this life ask us, make demands of us to lay our lives for them so they can rape and pillage us. That is in part of the dehumanizing effects of addiction, right? The God of this world, the God of this life, the God of all creation, God, Jesus, lays himself down and he gives life. False gods, idols, death. You guys, all I'm simply saying is this. I hope you know Jesus because God will come. He will judge. But he's already taking care of our judgment at the cross. This is one of the main reasons why we so love Jesus. I say this every week. I hope you don't get tired of it. This is why we so love Jesus, because what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we're going to respond. We're going to worship. We're going to sing to God. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to God joyfully. If you're one of our guests, don't feel any obligation to give. This is a way for us to give joyfully to God because we love what God's doing. We, love, we want to be part of that. We are also going to sing. We'll partake of communion. If you're not a Christian here, I encourage you don't partake of communion. But if you do, if you are a Christian, uh, I, what I want you to think about when you eat the bread and drink the cup, I want you to remember Jesus' body and blood on the cross and blood poured out for you, absorbing God's wrath in your place. I want you to worship him, to sing to him, to make sure that the affections in your heart actually line up with the doctrinal truth that we've just learned about. Father, we thank you for the cross. We love you, Jesus. We pray right now that you would just help these truths to just not simply be theological, theoretical matters, but God, I pray that they would be like fuel on the fires of our hearts for worship, to love you, to cast our cares down before you, to confess sin to you, to remember Calvary and your death for me, for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you took us out of darkness and brought us into light. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gods of this world, the false prophet, they would never lay their lives down for us. Ever. But you laid your lives down, life down for us. Pray that you would raise worship in our heart to be given back to you.